BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Hey, it's Matt, and I'm here in the studio with Austin, and we're excited to bring you another business episode of The Science of Success. We just launched season two of our business episodes. If you want to learn more about what these are and why we're doing them, be sure to check out the season two teaser that we recently released. And with that, Austin, tell us a little bit about how these episodes are different than a traditional Science of Success episode. Yeah. So it's important to know that you're still going to get all the great content you've come to know and love from the Science of Success every Thursday. These are bonus episodes with added value, specifically centered around business. We've interviewed some true titans of business in multiple industries from multiple walks of life. And what we're going to focus on are the habits, routines, and mindsets that made them the successful titans they are today. That said, these are lessons, routines, stories, best practices that anyone can learn from and apply to their life. You don't have to be a business owner. You can be an employee. You can be a student. Or you can, of course, be a business owner. But come check them out. You're going to come away with a ton of valuable takeaways. But we do have a bit of a business focus on these specific business episodes in Season 2. With that, let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we share the story of how our guest went from teetering on the edge of virtual bankruptcy to transforming his company into a high-growth startup with a massive exit seemingly overnight with our guest, Saad Juman. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. 
In our previous episode, we interviewed Carrie Lawrence, the first female F-14 Tomcat fighter pilot. It was an incredible conversation with some great stories and some fantastic lessons. Now for our interview with Saad. Saad Juman is the founder of Policy Medical Inc., a healthcare software company. Over the last few years, Saad grew his company to serve more than 3,000 hospitals and healthcare systems worldwide, growing it to serve millions of patients, clinicians, and community members daily. He also shares his business expertise by coaching others with his Energy for Entrepreneurs program. Saad, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, we're really excited to have you on the show today. You have such a fascinating journey, and there's some amazing lessons that can come out for executives and entrepreneurs that are going to be really valuable. I, I'd love to start out with just the the beginning of your journey, or actually, even before we dig into that, give me a very high-level sense of the business that you built and and the trajectory that it took, and then I want to dig into some of the some of the pieces from the from the journey and and some of the lessons from that. Sure. So, so the business that I built was in the healthcare sector. That's kind of fundamental because when I started the company, I did not start it to be an entrepreneur. I started it because I wanted to have a really positive impact in the world and I selected healthcare. And that manifested itself into a healthcare SaaS B2B company. So the company, what it actually did, the flagship products, it managed all of the non-clinical data within the hospital setting. Uh, and our primary clients were hospitals and chains of hospitals and health systems across the United States. And that journey for me, it was 17 and a half years. That's amazing. And so you started the company and, and I know you've since exited it. You built it up over 17 and a half years. Give me a sense at the time of exit, how many employees did the company have? How many, how many customers were you serving? That kind of thing. Yeah, the what was cool about that company is the employee count, we kept it pretty low for a company our size. So we were at approximately 37 full-time employees. We had a series of contractors all over the place, uh, but we were mainly a product company. What allowed us to keep the headcount pretty low as we scaled uh, were some technological decisions we made when it came to customer service and client success. And when I sold the company, uh, or when we sold the company, we had approximately 3,000 hospitals across the United States that were using our applications. That's incredible that you were able to scale such a large organization with essentially 40 employees. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my mindset has always been pretty traditional and old school when it comes to business. Uh, I never understood why needless headcount in some cases, not all cases, in some cases was sort of a badge of honor among CEOs and entrepreneurs. I, did, I always thought the least amount of people you have, the better. Yeah, that's a great perspective. And I'm sure that in, in many ways informed why the company was so successful. Uh, I'd love to zoom all the way back now to to the beginnings of the company. You you started it in in a basement, essentially. Is that correct? Yep. My, my mom's basement in a suburb of Toronto. Not the fanciest part of Toronto. Uh, it's uh, It's known as... It's known as a Scarborough. Uh, it's it's one of the, uh, I guess, the underprivileged areas of, of Toronto. But that's that's where it started, and that was before. If anybody's familiar with the Toronto tech scene, which we have a pretty burgeoning and vibrant tech scene now, this was before any of that even materialized. And so I want to I want to hit on one or two of the the really big moments in the in the growth of the company. You started out in in your mom's basement, and then 
How long did it take you to acquire your first customer? We acquired our first customer within the first nine months. So when we started the company, and I say we, it was my co-founder who I subsequently bought out years later. But my co-founder, Josh, and I, when we started the company, we left another company because we came up with the idea there, went to my mom's basement. And he was in charge of coding, programming, the, the engineering work. I was in charge of trying to find customers and selling. And as soon as we got something that was demo ready, we could demo it. We just couldn't ship it yet. I started to demo and sell it. So within the first nine months, we picked up our first two clients. Uh, Our first client was in upstate New York. And the reason upstate New York is because we needed to find clients that we could physically drive to. Because back then there was no cloud, there was no Amazon web services, any of that. You know, you sold software, you had to physically go, uh, in our case, to the hospital, go to their air conditioned server room with a bunch of CDs, install the application, train them and then drive home. So Uh, We didn't have enough money to even fly anywhere and get reimbursed and fly back. So that worked really well for our first customer. Our second customer, it it didn't work so well because they were in Nashville, Tennessee. So we drove from Toronto to Nashville, slept in the minivan, installed it, and then drove right back to Toronto. That's amazing. Nashville getting a little bit of love. Yep. And obviously, Nashville is a big healthcare city. So that makes total sense. What I'm curious... What enabled you to to really land? I mean, I know hospitals are huge institutions that are quite difficult to sell into with a two-person team, some scrappy founders in a basement. What enabled you to build the the credibility or the rapport to actually close a sale and, and, and get customers on board in the early days? It was a bit of naivety. We, we didn't know that we weren't on paper supposed to be selling to large U.S. hospitals from my mother's basement in Canada. We just figured that why not, right? If somebody's going to do it, why not us? Uh, Our original plan was actually selling to Canadian hospitals in Toronto, but that didn't work. We figured that out within the first month of trying to sell to Canadian hospitals that it just wasn't going to work because healthcare is just so different here. So it was a bit of ignorance just going for it. And also, I think timing had a lot to do with it because the, at the time we started the company, a lot of key underpinnings within the U.S. healthcare system around regulatory compliance and accreditation in healthcare in the United States was being solidified, if you will. And hospitals were actively looking for our type of niche product around that time. So I also think it was good timing at, at that time. Interesting. Yeah, that makes total sense. And there's so many success stories where it's it's just not not knowing that you can't do it is is such a key ingredient in some instances of actually doing it. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, if you look at if you study history and you see and I, I'm by no means anybody that, you know, invented, you know, the light bulb or anything like that. But if you look at these amazing inventions throughout history, you'll always see like the main inventor that gets all the credit. And if you keep on studying and digging, you'll see like this second or third person somewhere else randomly in the world that was also coming up with a similar invention at the same time. So I believe that that's also something that kind of exists. You know, um, if I look back within our little sector, when I started this company in Toronto and 
to the other competitors that I ended up having later on, um, I recently realized that they started around the same time as well because we've all exited our companies. Uh, so I've actually reached out to the rest of them now that you know we've all moved on. And I've just had conversations with them to say, hey, so when did you start? Why did you start? How did you start that? And we didn't know each other, right? I didn't know one guy that was in Idaho. I didn't know the other guy that was in Indiana. Uh, but we all kind of started within a year or so of each other because I think the market was changing, the climate was changing, and we were bubbling up with similar ideas independently. So fascinating. Yeah, the the stat about inventors is really interesting. And I've, I've heard that anecdote before. I'm curious, coming back to looking at the the journey, I love that, as you said, it was a 17-year journey because you hear these stories, you hear about people exiting businesses for for huge multiples, and you you think that it's always a quick journey. It's it's always an overnight success, you know, the unicorn in 18 months type of thing. But I love the fact that it took a long time to to really get traction, to hit scale and and to get to the end result that that you ultimately achieved. Yeah, it's not just it's not just the length. It's not just the long time. It's also what the journey develops inside of you as well. Because if you look at our journey at Policy Medical, there were two chapters, if you will, and they're not equally divided in time. So for the first 11, 12 years, the company was really sort of a lifestyle company. It was a small number of clients. It was just a small handful of people. Um, somewhere in that time, my co-founder had left. I had the company all to myself. And it was a lifestyle company in the sense that it was making some money enough for the few employees and myself, but it wasn't really going anywhere. And then there's the second chapter where it became this high growth, high impact company where we were able, we were able to get the impact that we wanted within healthcare and subsequently get the value value we wanted out of it. That's so interesting. I really want to dig into that in a number of ways. Let's start with your own mindset, your own internal orientation to the business. What changed after that 11 or 12 year mark that that led you to wanting to put the business into growth mode, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. I had to do a bit of soul searching. So after my business partner had moved on and, and I, I had bought him out. It was just myself. And after about a year or two, it just wasn't fun anymore. That was one thing. I started to dig and, and ask myself why it isn't fun anymore. And I, and I saw that we did not innovate the product at all for several years. So that was one reason. The other thing is I got disconnected to the why behind the business. I had a very clear why when I started the business, which was to impact people's health and make a positive impact. After the 11 years or so, it became sort of transactional, trying to find new hospitals, doing demos, but I disconnected from the why. So I had to ask myself at that point, do I still want to do this? Because right around that point, I mean, it was it was not a healthy company. The company was teetering on virtual bankruptcy, if if you will, at that particular point. When I went back inside myself and realized that, yeah, you know what? I still really want to do this business. There's, it's still a calling. I still want to have this impact in the world and try to make it through this business. That was sort of the internal reconnection point of saying, okay, let me relaunch. Let me restart the business from scratch. So what did that relaunching look like? 
It was a six-year process. In retrospect, it was about four different phases. Uh, the first phase was brought to me, brought to light by my mentors. So right around that, right around that first phase, that's when I actively started looking for mentorship and mentors. And I have a very specific mentorship formula that I followed that actually worked for me. I can't believe that so many entrepreneurs don't have mentors. And I can't believe that I did not have a mentor or mentors until that 11 year mark. But my mentors actually called me out in it and pretty much said, your product sucks. Your product is crap. That's all you do. This is all the product does uh, because it had become antiquated and they really started challenging me on that. So the first phase was an entire product relaunch or restart. I thought I was just refactoring the code and, and patching up the product and releasing a new version, but it wasn't that at all. It was rebuilding the whole thing from scratch. And not only that, but we also, once the product was done, which took about eight 18 months to almost two years to rebuild, we actually had to migrate all of our clients to the new product. But there's a business component to migration as well that usually puts a lot of businesses out of business, which is you have to migrate the contracts as well. So we were essentially going to our clients, our existing clients to say, hey, you know what, we've got this cool new version, this cool new product, you're going to benefit from it. And they were excited, but we also said, oh, by the way, we're going to need to charge you more money per year than we were charging you. Because one of the things that had hurt the company along the way was we were on a very old software pricing model, which was outdated, which essentially led to a very small amount of recurring revenue. So we were migrating people to this higher revenue tier, if, if you will. And I can I can go into the other the other yeah, phases no, unless, mean, unless you have some other questions about that that phase. No, that was great. I mean, I, I this is this to me is such an interesting topic. The the inflection point between average company lifestyle business and and high growth high impact startup. So I really want to break down the whole journey. So phase one, learn from your mentors, reinvent the product. That's eighteen months to two years. What happens in phase two? So phase two. We're now not only migrating new, uh, existing clients, we're going out to try to sell the new product, essentially, to the market. And the new clients are, are asking us for references because healthcare is very collegial. Uh, that's, you know, they, they essentially only buy when they know that their colleagues are actually uh, buying as well. So we had no references at all. We only had three references out of all the clients we had. And at that point, we had several hundred clients. So the next phase was really embarking on a client success journey, which was turning our clients into fans. So that took another 18 months or so. Um, and that was not just a, a thing that we said, right? My, my goal was actually to put in the processes, put in the systems, hire the people, so we could deliver a consistent experience to our clients that made them fans. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, it was that that one was really, really tough. I mean, because we didn't have all of the staff we needed. So I essentially had to study how our customer service team was functioning at that particular point to see where the gaps were. I also realized that I had to study the connection points with marketing and sales because marketing and sales and customer service, they were so divided in all these different silos. 
And then I came up with this framework that I wanted all three of those teams, sales, marketing, and, and customer service, which has now become client success in most companies. I wanted them to become a revenue generation team where they each had their own functions, but they had a deep respect and understanding of what each of the other teams did so they could work together. So for example, my client success people that are taking care of customers, they needed to be sales savvy enough to look for upsell opportunities. The salespeople that were selling to new customers, they needed to be compassionate enough to stay plugged into the customers that they were selling to and not abandon them after the sale. And then the marketing people, they needed to essentially create really high value educational content that would be able to serve both the clients and the new prospects. So it was this trifecta of, of all, all of these teams working cohesively together. So, you know, that, that involved putting in systems, you know, like, like a Zendesk, building out a customer portal, creating cool competitions where customers started to compete. And, you know, towards the ending of the company, the last few years, we had customers competing to see who would come on stage with us to speak at conferences, who would host webinars for us, who would win a contest. So they would have the privilege to write a white paper for us. So, so a lot of this came about because we, I studied client success and I studied how to build it out. And we even put in our own little processes that had nothing to do with technology as well. We had something called the daily five where everyone in sales, marketing clients and client success every day, they would get this, these randomized five clients and their phone numbers to call. And they would be given two to three talking points when they made those calls. So essentially a call would, would go, you know, according to something like this, they would call. And even if they got a voicemail, they'd say, Hey, this is Saad calling from policy medical. In this case, wanted to reach out to let you know about this new feature to let you know that we're going to be at this conference next month, if you're going to be there. And I'm just calling to check in to see how things are going. So essentially the reason we did the daily five was to move the customers from trusting just me and a few other people to trusting the brand overall. Saad, this stuff is genius. You just you just put on just in the three or four strategies and suggestions you just shared, you just put on a masterclass in how to build value, especially as a software company, but really anybody who wants to improve customer success. I mean, the, the, the Daily Five is incredible. The idea of having customers compete for speaking opportunities and, and white papers and so forth, really, really fascinating. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shana's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Before we jump in, how long was the client success kind of remapping process? How long did that take to really get that implemented in the culture and the, and the process of the company? About 18 months. I mean, there, there were things that took a long time. You know, we, we realized that our 
high-end platinum customers. And we in that whole process, we also grouped customers. We never had them grouped before. So we had platinum, gold, and silver. And for each tier, we would have different criteria that would drop somebody into that tier. It wasn't just revenue. And for each tier, we would also have the ways that we would be communicating with them on an weekly, a monthly, or an annual basis. So for example, the lower tier, the silver customers, they probably did not want to see our faces every quarter. They probably just wanted a touch-based webinar or phone call. But the platinum customers, they probably wanted to see our faces physically twice a year. So so we came up with, with all of all of those things. Very interesting. All right. So let's dig into phase three. So phase three was, we called it becoming the Wikipedia of our space. So that was really me acknowledging that sales, the way to sell and get new revenue for a company had fundamentally changed from when I initially started the company. When I initially started the company, I was a software sales guy originally. So I was churning out 100, 150 phone calls a day via cold calling. And that's how we built a bunch of customers in the early years. But I was acknowledging in this third phase that we're discussing right now that sales doesn't really happen like that anymore, that it happens through inbound content marketing. And by essentially producing really premium, high value educational content. So my goal was to become the Wikipedia of our space, whereas our clients would be able to go to our website. Even my competitors' clients should be able to go to our website to get amazing value and educational content. So it was building out the entire process uh, and that was really, really difficult to do. That took us about another 18 months or so, maybe less, probably like 12 months to actually execute that. And that required me hiring the right team because we did not have a very large marketing team at that point and also creating sourcing. Uh, so that was the process of essentially using the employees of the company to generate the content or the ideas for the content and building a system around that. So every month, the company would be churning out really high value content that could be leveraged in the sales process, that could be leveraged in the client success process, and even as elevating the brand as a thought leader within the space. That's so interesting and makes total sense about positioning yourself as a thought leader and a content expert. I want to dig into now. Tell me a little bit about the fourth phase of your growth. So the fourth phase of our growth was had two components to it. One was the integration of the sales, marketing, and client success teams fully. So there was still a little bit of work to integrate those teams together. And the second part of this final phase was had to do with me. I realized that I was still functioning as an entrepreneur. And I realized that I was not going to be able to extract the value out of the company or generate the value for the company, if you will, if I was still operating as an entrepreneur. I realized that the company was growing up. It went from a child to a teenager. And then by that point, it was a young, a young adult. And I realized that it needed a CEO. So I had to very rapidly acknowledge that an entrepreneur is not a CEO. And I needed to grow into a CEO really fast. And I imagined in my mind, I always, kept, I always had this image of me standing on one side of a bridge as an entrepreneur, and on the other side of the bridge, 
is the CEO role. And I needed to walk across that bridge pretty rapidly to become the CEO. Uh, so that that was a big part of that phase. And some of the examples of me growing up and, and running the company as a CEO was really running the company with much less emotion, running the company with more data, trusting and recruiting in an executive team that we would really collaborate together with and running the company with the right corporate governance uh, and structure that that a corporation needed. That's so interesting. And I want to unpack the the journey to CEO a little bit more. But before we dig into that, I want to come back to this these phases of growth. While you were pursuing that journey, were you bootstrapping the company this entire time? Did you did you raise capital to help build out these teams and integrate these functions? What enabled you to really execute on each of those different phases? It, it was completely bootstrapped. So we didn't raise any funds. Uh, it was very, very stressful because everything was funded off of organic growth. So we could only do things once we had the money to do it. And what was your thought process for bootstrapping as opposed to bringing in some capital to accelerate some of these transitions? I never, every time I thought about bringing in capital, I would think about the amount of capital I would actually need. And in my mind, it didn't seem like that much. And I thought to myself, well, I could go through all the stress of trying to find the capital or I could just try to sell more. And I think, um, you know, perhaps that's something that probably didn't make me that popular with some of my employees, but I would I would put this intense pressure to sell and continue to grow and grow the company at two to 300% a year. That was always the goal. And because I was a salesperson by nature, I think I just understood that a little bit better. I'm like, you know what? Okay, well, all we need is a half a million dollars to fund this amount of growth to hire these employees. Okay, let's just sell more. Did the business have a pretty rapid sales cycle that enabled you to to really quickly recapture some of the value from your sales efforts? Yeah, I, I would say so. For B2B sales, selling to healthcare and hospitals, I mean, our typical sales cycle w- was was three months, right? And we understood the sales oh, wow. cycle really, really well. Yeah. Now that's that's the mean average sales cycle. I mean, sometimes it could be a few weeks. If it was a really large complex deal with a huge chain of hospitals, I mean, maybe it could span into nine, 10 months. But but on average, it was a, it was three months. That's actually much shorter than I would have anticipated. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And, and you know, you, what shortened the sales cycle considerably was the inbound content marketing effort. When we eventually built up a large repository of educational content and we learned how to use it and leverage it in the sales cycle, that not only brought down the sales cycle quite a bit, but it increased our win ratio. Our win ratio went from 20% to 70%, 7-0. When we realized that if we were strategically giving the prospect certain pieces of content throughout their exploratory journey, we would have a much, much higher chance of closing those deals above our competitors. That's so fascinating. That's a massive jump in the win ratio. It is, it is. How did you make sure that your content actually stood out, was actually differentiated and and really created value? My, my answer to that is the same from day one to when we sold the company, which was our clients. We would run everything by our customers, our key customers. We had a 
for for ideas like this, we had a senior customer advisory group, which was really every 60 days, we would have approximately 20 large customers, um, our most respected customers. They would hop on um, a WebEx or a Zoom call with us, and I would run different ideas by them. Sometimes it was product ideas. Sometimes it was premium content ideas. Sometimes it was marketing ideas to see what their, their, their thoughts were. And they were very, very honest with us. And the other thing that also helped quite a bit was when we started to use our clients with us to create content, because then we had this collegial respect amongst the other clients to respect the, uh, the content that we were putting out. Some of the content was so useful, we started hosting webinars and we, we got some of the webinars approved for what they called continuing education credits. Uh, so essentially, people would show up, they would view the webinar, and because they would be an attendee at the webinar, they would get credits from their hospital towards their next professional designation. That's how valuable some of the content was. And that actually took our webinar attendees up from, we used to struggle to get 30 people to show up to a webinar. And some of those webinars would have five, 600 people in on those webinars. That's incredible. And was this content specifically, I guess I'm trying to think about the exact way to phrase this, but was the content super targeted around the product and the, and the and the problems that you were solving? Or was it much more generic, really expanding out and covering a wide array of things? For webinars, it was very specific. However, for written content and specifically for my keynotes when I would go out and speak at, this, at the healthcare conferences that my customers would be at, that strategy was something that I remember my board and some board members really being upset about. And for example, my speeches, I would never speak about the software. I would not even mention my company name. Uh, the purpose of those speeches, it was really for me to speak about something I was noticing within healthcare, which I could identify with within the entrepreneur world, which was burnout and identity issues. Um, so really superimposing your personal identity with your career identity, uh, which I struggled with in the past. So my my speeches were around that. But what ended up happening indirectly was I would give a keynote. We would have a booth at, at the same conference. People would come up afterwards and say, hey, you never mentioned the name of the company. I'm like, what, what company do you run? And I would just I would verbally just tell them, I'm like, it's, it's this company. But, you know, it's, it's not about the speech isn't about the company. And that would actually, I would leave, but they would end up going to the to the booth and 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 sales related things would end up happening from that. That's so interesting. And and that really gets into one of the most fascinating things that I find about your journey and and what you speak about and write about is this different perspective on being a successful entrepreneur, being a successful CEO. And it really in many ways turns a lot of the conventional wisdom on its head. So I'd love to hear what your perspective is on on what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur and CEO and and why that might be different from what a lot of people tell you the conventional wisdom is well i can i can tell you some of the things that that i believe based on my experience and and you know we can we can delve in further one is i think that entrepreneurs fundamentally misunderstand themselves and if we're being honest as entrepreneurs, I think, and I hear this a lot at, at entrepreneur gatherings and conferences where entrepreneurs say things like, you know what, I'm not a nine to fiver. I can't identify with people that are worker bees that are nine to fivers. Um, and there's almost this, 
this indirect message that entrepreneurs are the special breed that only certain special people can be entrepreneurs and and everyone else misunderstands us. But I actually think that entrepreneurs misunderstand themselves uh, because I actually believe that entrepreneurs are artists. They're creatives. They're creative people. And when they start out their ventures, they really adopt that creative sort of vibe and energy and lifestyle. But the problem with most entrepreneurs is the canvas that they're painting and the painting they're painting on the canvas is a business. And for that painting to work, you do need people that are not like you to make the thing happen, which are what we call nine to fivers and people that are that operate on a different rhythm altogether. I think the key for a lot of entrepreneurs is to acknowledge that they're creatives, acknowledge that they're artists and acknowledge that they need the space and the right practices to continue to journey inside themselves. Because in my belief, it's the journey inside yourself, the continual practice to go inside yourself, to listen to your inner voice that leads to the best ventures. And a lot of entrepreneurs, I think they're too preoccupied in their mind as to what the idea is going to be, what the tactic is going to be, what the strategy is going to be. But based on my experience, I've always tried to tunnel inside myself, get really quiet and listen to what my inner voice is telling me. And I don't really attach myself to what comes out. So Policy Medical, the 17 and a half year journey, that was a byproduct of me going inside myself for a period of months before the journey started. And what came out was a 17 and a half year tech journey. And when you reached that critical inflection point and switched from a slower lifestyle company to a high growth business, was that the result of another journey of self-discovery? It, it was. It was... It was challenging. I didn't realize how much I needed a continual practice to continue to go inside because I made the mistake of having several months of seven or several years of continual execution. But eventually I adopted a rhythm and different practices like meditation, meditation and other practices of on a daily and weekly basis, going back inside and connecting to my inner voice to make sure that I'm moving along in, in the right way. That's how I knew it was time to sell the company. That's how I knew that there were specific key clients that we needed to focus on. That's how I knew that certain employees were not a good fit anymore. And that's how I knew that certain people that we were interviewing were the ones to take certain parts of the company to the next level. It was that inner voice telling me that. So interesting because the research talks about this concept of contemplative routines things like meditation, things like journaling, stepping back and and getting some perspective on what you're doing, how you're spending your time, et cetera, being such a, a critical component of, of people who are really, really successful. And it's so interesting to see that that seems to be a really critical component of, of your journey as well. And when, when you reintegrated that and made it a practice, whether it's daily, weekly, et cetera, it seems like it really had a, a tremendous impact on both you personally and the growth of the business. It did. And, and I'm thankful for that. However, I, I realized something in the year and a half since I sold the company. So after I sold the company, you know, I went through a long period of, of not really doing anything formally. And I still continued those same practices, journaling, meditation, exercise, hiking, all, all of those types of practices. However, what I ended up doing post-exit was I did it much more naturally and organically. So for example, when I had my business and I was journaling, I almost felt like 
I need with rigor, I must journal every single day. It's part of my morning ritual and routine. This is, this is what makes me me, which was, I realized in retrospect, that was giving me average returns. When I adopted a much more organic, intuitive uh, cycle of doing those practices, of essentially doing it when I felt like doing it, it became much more beneficial to me. Explain that a little bit more. So I've got this, I, maybe it's not my concept. It probably came from somewhere else, but I, I guess I'll, I'll, for today, I'll claim it as my own. So I've got this concept of, of a day cycle. So I used to feel really guilty if I missed one of my morning best practices, one of my morning routines. And I would, I would get really down and be like, okay, you know what? Okay. I got to get back on the, got to get back on the horse here and continue journaling every day then. Cause I missed two days. But now the way I look at it is I probably operate on a 48 hour day. Whereas, and what I mean by that is I don't have the drive and desire to do practices probably for a few days at a time. It doesn't need to be every day. So I kind of give myself permission by thinking of it as I don't operate on a 24 hour day. I operate on a 48 hour day for these particular practices. And if some days, if I don't feel like doing a certain best practice, that's okay. It's not that I'm lazy. I have to discern between laziness and and the and not needing to do it at that particular time. It's I'll do it on another day. That totally makes sense, and and that contextualizes what you said earlier about having it be more natural and and organic as opposed to rigid and and forced. I want to come back to the tools and, and specific strategies that you use for journeying inside of yourself for self discovery. We, we touched on a few of them, but I want to really understand, give me, a, give me some concrete sense of what were the actual activities that you were doing when you were doing some of these contemplative routines? So journaling, two types of journaling I would do at times. One was uh, almost like a gratitude journal, which did not resonate with me as much. Um, I know the science behind gratitude journaling and all of that, but for me, it didn't really resonate. But what resonated with me was almost, I think, what's called free flow journaling, where you try to clear your mind, put pen to paper, and just write with whatever comes out. So I would do a page at a time whenever I did that. And and initially, the entries would look like nonsense. But then over time, you would actually see some trends of what might be going on in your subconscious. So I felt that very freeing to do from time to time. That was one practice. The other practice over time um, and that I continue to do is meditation, essentially getting really quiet, eyes closed, and getting in touch with your inner voice. And that was really, really important because it got it led me to a place of getting rid of all of the other voices from the past and the present that are t- telling me what to do. And those voices are things like your past teachers, your parents, advisors, shareholders, all of those types of people. Um, so meditation was was critical. Um, exercise has always been super duper important to me. Um, it lifts my mood. Um, I've always been athletic and an athlete throughout my my entire life. So um, exercising uh, very rigorously is something that that helped me out quite a bit. Probably the most powerful form of losing track of time and going inside of myself is a very personal thing. And at first I'll, I'll say what it is and it, it might sound strange. I, I love to go on my driveway and shoot hoops. So I'll just shoot and shoot and shoot. And I literally lose track of time. 
Now, if anyone's listening to this, I'm not saying that you need to go on your driveway or go to a basketball court and shoot hoops because that might not be your thing. But the reason why that works for me is that's something that I've been doing since I was probably in the sixth grade. So one tactic for some of the entrepreneurs that I mentor and coach and things like that, that I always tell them is, what did you do when you were 12 years old or in the sixth grade that brought you joy and you and allowed you to lose track of time? And it's amazing some of the things, some of the people that I'm working with have come up with. You know, some people it's randomly riding their bicycle around their neighborhood. Other people it's video games. Other It's so many different activities, but it's that getting lost in time. Uh, I find that to be a, a really powerful form of, of meditation and going inside yourself. I think all of those are great suggestions. And, and the the term I would use probably to describe whether it's shooting hoops, getting lost, playing video games, whatever it might be, would be finding a way to plug into flow states. Because flow states are so powerful and and really from a from a neurological perspective, essentially shut down or minimize the brain function in the part of the brain that's responsible for self-awareness and you literally lose yourself in the activity that you're doing. So it's a really powerful, in some senses, form of mindfulness. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And the, if I can mention one other thing that's that's slightly controversial, but I'll, I'll mention it anyways. It's this other side that I believe every person has that most people don't want to admit it's that side that might be that that secret side to them. Um, and I believe every human being has that. And and I'm, I'm not saying it's a side that necessarily succumbs to all of the bad vices out there, but it's a darker side that, that we all have. And And I've learned that, hey, you know what? I've got that side to me as well. And when I started to acknowledge that I've got that side, those thoughts, those urges, those things that I want to do, I found that transmutation, I think is the word, where you take that energy and you transmute it into a more productive activity. I found that to be extremely, extremely helpful uh, in my entrepreneurial journey. And, 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 I'm not, and I'm not suggesting to take issues or ideas or thoughts that you have inside that might be negative and push it down and forget about it. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying I'm saying use the natural darker side that the secret side that we all have instead of trying to get rid of it, own it, acknowledge that it's there, but instead of letting it use you, you you use it. Yeah, that that aligns with the classical Jungian concept of the shadow and acknowledging the shadow, figuring out what's going on and, and integrating it into a whole being as opposed to trying to bury it and hide it and, and pretend like it doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. So for somebody who's been listening to this conversation and, and you may have just shared a number of these strategies, but what would be one thing that you, that you would recommend as an action item or a piece of homework for our listeners to, to concretely implement that we've talked about today? One thing I would say, what's something that you can do for one to five minutes a day. Now a day based on what you've heard earlier, being a cycle that you accept to be your day, right? It could be every 24 hours, every 48 hours, every 72 hours, et cetera. So what's something you could do for one to five minutes a day that has nothing to do with anyone else that allows you to turn inwards and has you sort of 
hearing your own inner voice. Because I think that inner voice has all the wisdom, all the ideas, all the direction, all the strategic plans that that you need. And, and the reason I feel so strongly about that is I'm surrounded and I'm within entrepreneur communities where it seems like the most popular thing that has been going on for the last several years are events like retreats. So a lot of my friends are constantly going on retreats. And I ask, why are you going on these retreats? And, you know, they may go to Thailand for a retreat. They may go to wherever for, for, a, for an entrepreneurial retreat for three to four days every quarter or sometimes more. And they'll say, well, you know what? I'm going to get space. I'm going to get ideas. I'm going to do some inner work. But I beg to differ because I think a lot of people that are doing these types of retreats are actually retreating away from themselves. They're running away from their regular life. So what I'd suggest to anybody listening to this is how could you create a one to five minute retreat in your own city, in your own home, in your own office where you live a few times a week? Such a great suggestion. And I love the idea of instead of retreating from yourself, find a way that you can reconnect with yourself. Yes. Yeah. Great, great, great way of putting it. And Saad, where can listeners find more information about you, your work, and and everything that you're doing now? I've always operated a bit reclusively in the background, but uh, recently I've started to step out of my shell a little bit more. So I do have a website now, which is uh, www.saadjuman.io. And I've recently started sharing some of my thoughts, some of my ideas on on LinkedIn and Twitter and, and some of those other social media channels. Well, we'll be sure to include all of that in our show notes. Saad, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and for sharing all this wisdom. Some really, really interesting stories about growing your software company and some some fascinating insights about really what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur and an executive. Thanks so much, Matt. It's been my pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, 
everything we discuss and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Success.